14 is where I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles today. So John 14 is where we're going to be. I'd like to speak to you today on Holy Spirit and another paraclete. And I want to thank John and Avi and Corin for leading us in our worship this morning. And uh, the team has done such a phenomenal job. They always do, but uh, during this uh, break, I know that you're thankful for them as well as I am. So John 14 this morning, and I would like to speak to you again on Holy Spirit, another paraclete. In John 14, actually starting at the end of John 13, all the way to John 17, the scriptures give us what is referred to as the farewell discourse. This is when the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples, and in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord Jesus is going to be um, teaching this, we also refer to it as the Upper Room Discourse. Um, this is right after the Last Supper. And it, it reminds us that whenever we participate in Lord's Table, it's kind of the merging of some busy traffic. It is the, the moment where in Christology and pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of Christ, there, there's really a merging because in John 13 all the way to John 17, the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples that he is about to depart. He's about to leave. He's about to uh, go to heaven after he dies on the cross. He's buried. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And he is with the Father, seated at the right hand of his Father. So he is telling his disciples, I'm about to depart, but there's actually some advantages for me to leave. And you, as you read this passage, and I encourage you to read the end of John 13 all the way to John 17 so that you can get a feel of it. But if you did read that or if you've read it recently, you notice that there's a lot of interaction back and forth between the disciples and Jesus and Jesus and the disciples because Jesus is saying, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. So Peter's inquiring, where are you going? Philip's inquiring, where are you going? Why can't we come? And he's explaining to them that he's going, but he's also coming. Now, his coming, he's not referring to his second coming. He's actually referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit that's going to be now available for all believers. Now, I want to refer to something that I believe I would resonate with everybody who's listening to me, and that's coffee. How many coffee lovers do we have out there? Um, I'm a coffee lover, but one thing I've noticed is um, you can tell pretty much about an hour afterwards if your coffee was decaffeinated. You know, decaffeinated coffee may be good in, for its taste, but it's actually not real coffee because decaffeinated coffee won't wake you up, it won't perk you up, it won't keep you up, it won't get you up, it's just there. It looks like coffee, smells like coffee, tastes like coffee. It just doesn't do for you what coffee is supposed to do. When we were in Brazil with others from our church on a mission team, um, we, one of the things that I heard referred to, their Brazilian coffee there is not only tasty, but it's strong. And they referred to our coffee as decaffeinated coffee. The reason I bring coffee up, though, is because I believe it's possible that in our present time, we've got a form of decaffeinated Christianity. It has the form, but it lacks the power that the scriptures tell us that we ought to have through the Spirit of God. We live in a Christian culture that has a lot to do with 
forms and religiosity, but oftentimes is lacking the power. I was trying to think of a way to, to explain that to you because the scriptures teach us, and we're looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that we are, we, it's impossible for us to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit, without the Lord at work very personally in our lives. In fact, in this farewell discourse is included John 15, a very popular passage where the Lord Jesus is teaching about the branch and the vine. And he's talking about how the branch must abide in the vine. And if it doesn't abide in the vine, then it will be impossible for it to do anything. It will be impossible for it to bear fruit. In fact, Jesus says it this way, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate that for you. And this illustration is not a good illustration. I'm going to start it that way. I mean, it's not the best illustration, but it was the best illustration I could come up with, so I'm going to go ahead and use it. Right here, you'll notice that I have a glove. This is a pretty basic glove. It's a, a working glove. It's a glove that is supposed to help um, do garden work and other small tasks. It's not like a big industrial glove, but it is designed for work. Now, you'll notice that if I lay that glove there, uh, it doesn't do any work. It doesn't accomplish anything. Now, now, I could take up a variety of things to try to get this glove to do some work, to do what it was intended to do, what it was created for. So maybe I would say to the glove, hey, would you please do your job? You need to work. You were created to work. And we know that nothing like that is going to happen. If I maybe started to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give it some encouragement, maybe show it how to do it. I can say, okay, what you need to do is you need to take that thumb and you need to bring it over to that pinky and you need to grab the Bible and do some work. Well, we know that that wouldn't help because it will still do nothing. Well, maybe I decided it needs some one-on-one accountability with someone just like it. So, so I'm going to put together with this glove another glove just like it and say, now you guys can kind of mentor one another and now do some work. The result is the same, isn't it? Maybe we think, well, what it needs is it needs to make a decision. It needs to make a decision and dedicate itself to do what it was intended to do, work. I think we would still be disappointed, wouldn't we? Because nothing's going to happen. Maybe what it's missing is fellowship. Fellowship with people different than this glove. So what we could do is we could grab some other gloves. So I've got a ski glove here. I've got a a running glove, and I've got even a soccer, um, a goalie-keeping glove, and we still have the same problem, don't we? The glove still doesn't do what it's intended to do. Now, again, I told you it was not the best illustration, but the only way the glove is going to accomplish anything is for it to be filled with something powerful to make it work and do what it's intended to do. Now, the illustration is obvious. Without me, you can do what? Nothing. And the scriptures teach us that we can't live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ lives through us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the way the Christian life is to be lived. That is the way we're supposed to enjoy the very presence of God. You see, in this farewell discourse, The Lord Jesus is going to teach this, 
Not only without me you can do nothing, but he's saying there are some advantages for God, for Jesus going away. And those advantages for Jesus going away outweigh the disadvantages of him going away. And the advantage that he is going to teach them is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, another paraclete. So I want us to consider that this morning, and there are some sprinkled, these passages are sprinkled out through the entirety of this farewell discourse, and I want us to consider those. So I place those passages on the um, worship booklet that you may have downloaded, and I think they're going to be available to you on the screen. But nevertheless, I hope you'll turn to them. So the first one I want to read is John 14, verses 16 to 18. The scriptures say, and I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So you see Jesus here is teaching that Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to depart and the advantage is going to be, there's going to be another helper that's going to come and take my place. So there's going to be a, a, a person of the Godhead that's going to be given that will take the place of Jesus and be a personal presence of God in the life of the believer. They will not feel orphaned. Now again, they're struggling with Jesus talking about going away and departing. Now I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, because the same word for helper is used there, is translated differently, is translated advocate in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And here's what the scriptures say there. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I want you to turn over to John 14, 26. So if you go back to the uh, farewell discourse, John 14, 26, we're going to see our word again. But the helper, there it is, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now John 15, 26. So just turn over one chapter to John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And now the most lengthy passage that again is going to use the word for advocate, for counselor, for comforter, translated helper again, paraclete, John 16, 7 to 11. Please turn there, John 16, 7 to 11. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
Those passages of Scripture are teaching us again that without Him, we can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. But this passage of Scripture is going to give us even more, and I want us to break it down into studying that what he teaches us in this passage is there are two paracletes, two helpers. There are um, not only two paracletes, but they're going to trade places. And finally, there are three prosecutions. There are three prosecutions. So first of all, there are two paracletes, two paracletes. Now, before we get to that, I want us to learn something together during this series of messages on the Holy Spirit. Um, many of you know that there are creeds and confessions that have been written for the, during the history of the church that have served Christians well, because doctrines like the Holy Spirit were not doctrines that were very clearly articulated right away. For instance, the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Scriptures, but it's taught in the Scriptures. We don't have in the Scriptures the layout of the um, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, laid out in terms of the Trinity. But what we have is the teaching of the Trinity throughout the New Testament. And this particular creed that I want us to learn this phrase about is from the Nicene Creed in the 4th century. And it really takes all that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. Well, not all that we need to know, but the basic principles. These creeds were form, formulated during times of attack on certain doctrines. And this one is from the Nicene Creed. And so we want to say it together, and we'll do this each week over the next few weeks. Let's say it together. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Let's say it together one more time. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Now, I want us to first start with two paracletes. Two paracletes. You'll notice the Lord Jesus says in John 14, go back to that passage please with me. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Now, he is saying that there is going to be another helper. Now, I want us to first see the word another this word, another, the Greek word alas, means another of the same kind. He, he's not saying another of a different kind, but another just like me. So there's going to be a helper who comes. I'm going to ask the Father to send this helper, and he's going to be just like me. It's similar when you go into a restaurant. We haven't had too many of those occasions lately, have we? But when you go into a restaurant and you're drinking, for, for instance, a Diet Coke, and you ask for a refill, and or the waiter or waitresses says, would you like another Coke? Now, what are you expecting to come to the table? Well, of course, you're expecting another Coke, another Diet Coke, whatever beverage you are enjoying. What you're not expecting is for them to bring something you weren't drinking, like a Mountain Dew or an Orange Kiss or something like that, Orange Crush. You're going to ask for the same kind of drink that you had. Why I point that out is Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us that there is going to be a helper who comes who is just like Jesus. Just like Jesus who is also a paraclete. 
Now, I keep referring to the Greek word paraclete or the transliteration of that word because I do not think the word helper that you see in our text is the best translation. The reason is because in English, when we hear the word helper, we think is that's just kind of like an assistant who comes alongside of us who can just kind of encourage us. Even when we hear the word comforter or counselor, it sounds like somebody inferior to us that has just decided that they'll kind of walk along life with us in case we have a need. That is not what the word means. And that's why I read for us in our hearing 1 John chapter 2. And if you want to refer back to that now, the other time John uses this very word is used in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, he says this, if we sin, if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now the word for helper there, the word for paraclete, is, is translated in 1 John 2.1 as advocate. Now when you hear the word advocate, you should be hearing or thinking of a defense attorney. Someone who is going to plead your cause. And that's exactly what 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 is saying about Christ. That Christ, after his resurrection from the dead and ascension, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. So, at the right hand of God, we have the perfect defense attorney who, when we are accused by the great accuser, Satan, who's always going around, his, his big work, is to accuse the brethren, we're told. Like Job, he accused. And we're told that in 1 John chapter 2, that Jesus is the great advocate. That when we sin as believers, and we're going to, when we sin, we can come to the Father in the name of Christ. And he is our great advocate. He's our great defense attorney. So catch this. He, he says that Jesus is telling his disciples that I'm going to ask the Father to send a helper, a paraclete, an advocate, just like me, to be in you. Do you see the rest of the passage? Here in John 14, he says this helper is going to, you know him, verse number, um, if you'll notice in verse number 17, he says, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in the future in you. What Jesus is doing here is he's prophesying of the time that this helper, this other paraclete, this second attorney, this second defense attorney is going to actually dwell in believers. He is going to indwell them. Now, why is that important for us? It's important for us because the teaching of Jesus about the Holy Spirit is that he will be an exact replacement for the personal presence of Jesus in the life of the believer. But he's going to have a particular work, and it's going to be that of a defense attorney, that of an advocate. I know that there's some of you listening, and you perhaps watched the episode was, episodes when they were brand new. Me, not so much. But I did watch reruns of Perry Mason. How many Perry Mason fans do we have out there? You watch Perry Mason, and perhaps you notice that from time to time, Perry Mason was referred to as a counselor. 
because that was another word for a defense attorney, a lawyer, someone, an attorney who was going to come alongside, and that's what the word, it's a compound Greek word that means to come alongside and assist someone. And the word paraclete is this word that references Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside and he is going to be a defense attorney just like Jesus is for us in heaven. One of the ways we can also understand that is to understand that just like Jesus is an advocate for us in heaven, the Holy Spirit is now a defense attorney in our hearts. You ever notice this just in terms of your experience as a Christian? The experience of noticing that it's not simply preaching the gospel publicly and knowing that Jesus is there to defend us and plead for us when we sin. But the Holy Spirit of God is that personal presence of the third member of the Godhead who ministers to us as a defense attorney in our own hearts. What about that throne room of your hearts? I mean, it's a wonderful truth to know that Satan, the great accuser of the brethren, is being dealt with in the courts of heaven. But knowing that the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the second defense attorney, is providing that same ministry in our souls. You know, there's a hymn that we haven't sung much around here. It's an old hymn. I wish that we would learn it sometime. It's by Charles Wesley, and perhaps you know it. It's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. It's a wonderful text, and in this text, uh, there's quite a few verses, but, but in this text, Wesley deals with Jesus as our paraclete, and then he finishes the hymn dealing with the Holy Spirit as our second paraclete. And I want you to just notice this. I'm going to read the text, and I want you to see... Which of the paracletes is he referring to in which verses? First of all, he says, Arise, my soul, arise. So we know this is one of those hymns, I've mentioned them to you before, where we actually preach to our own heart the gospel. How good are we at that? How good are we at this ability to preach the gospel, the good news, to our own souls? This is one of those songs that will help you. I've placed this one in the flyleaf of my Bible. And at times, I just need to talk to my soul. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Now, which paraclete is verse 1, stanza 1, referring to? I was referring to Jesus as he is seated in his session at the right hand of the Father, pleading on our behalf. The next verse says, Shake off your guilty fears and rise. He ever lives above. For me to intercede his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead, his blood atone for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Which paraclete is he referring to in stanza two? Again, Jesus Christ, as he pleads for us at the right hand of the Father. Third stanza, it says, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. 
nor let that ransom sinner die. Again, which of the two paracletes? Is it Jesus or the Spirit? Again, it's Jesus pleading. Now, stanza four, listen to this. His dear anointed one, Jesus, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. The Spirit answers to the blood. The Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I'm born again. I'm born of God. Which paraclete stands before referring to? The helper. The defense attorney. The other paraclete. The Holy Spirit. He's the one in the courtroom of our hearts. When our heart is condemning us because of sin. Because of falling into that sin that so easily besets us once again. For those thoughts bombarding our minds in sin and thoughts that are unrighteous, and our heart is condemning us, the Spirit answers to the blood and reminds us, you've been born of God. Listen to the last verse. My God is reconciled. I hear His pardoning voice. He owns me for His child I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Where does Abba, where does this language come from? Romans 8 says, again, it's the second paraclete. This is the ministry of the second paraclete in the heart of believers when he is in them. And it's the ministry of the paraclete now in your life and in my life. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, I'm going to go away, but the advantage is the second paraclete, the second defense attorney is going to come. And he's going to minister in your heart as a defense attorney. So Jesus teaches them in this farewell discourse, without me, without the Spirit of God, you can do what? Nothing. You can do nothing. Secondly, I want us to see it trading places. Trading places. In John 16, if you'll turn there, in verses 5 to 7, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, of course, they have been asking, where are you going? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now, this statement, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, is like a grand underline in the Greek text. It's similar to when parents pull their children aside and they say things like, listen to me, eyeballs, look me in the eyes, and Jesus is saying, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, look me in the eyes, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, there it is again, the paraclete, the second paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, Jesus again is saying that there are advantages to him leaving. And those advantages to him leaving is that the Spirit of God will now indwell believers. See, the coming of the paraclete, or the coming of the Holy Spirit, is a distinct advantage to the disciples. And this cannot happen until Jesus departs. They are going to trade places. So Jesus, beside his disciples for three and a half years of public ministry, is now going to depart he is going to be crucified, buried, rise the third day, ascend into heaven, and sit on the right hand of the Father. 
and the Spirit of God is going to be sent. The promise of the Father, they're going to wait for it. At Pentecost, He's going to come, and now every believer is going to be indwelt by the second paraclete, by the Spirit of God. Now, I mentioned a lot of TV shows today, sorry. Did you ever see that TLC, the Learning Channel show, I think it was on that channel, um, Trading Spaces? Trading Spaces was basically this program. It was fascinating. Two neighbors um, would decide that they were going to trade spaces, and one of the rooms in their house was going to be redecorated by the other neighbor. Now, both of them had um, some people that would help them in, in design of the homes and of this renovation. Um, they shared a carpenter. They were given a budget. And then after a few days, they brought the other family back into their home to see what had happened to this room, to this space. I always found it fascinating when the neighbor didn't like what the other neighbor had done. Most episodes, they were really happy, and they went on and on about how amazing it was. But there were a few that I thought were absolutely fascinating when the neighbor came in and was really upset at the way that they had redecorated the space. But, but the point is, they traded spaces. They traded places. And that is what Jesus is predicting here. I mentioned this last week, but I want to mention it again, and I want to do it in the form of a question. If you had the opportunity to choose being with Christ for three and a half years of ministry, I mean, really with Him, 24-7, pretty much, just think about the advantages you would have. You would know the color of his eyes. You would know his stature. You'd know what his facial features were like, what the tone of voice was like. You'd learn his personality because he was completely human. You would learn how he carried himself. You would, you would learn how he taught in such a way that people gravitated and were magnetized to him. You would see his compassion. You'd watch his prayer life. You'd see his miracles. You'd watch how dependent he was on the Spirit of God and how focused he was on doing the will of God. You would see how he interacted with his earthly brothers and sisters, how he interacted with his parents, if you knew him before Joseph died, and even then with Mary. I mean, how awesome would that be? I mean, I have to admit, when I think about it, I was just like, oh, I would do anything for that experience. To be that close to Jesus, to see him, to hear him, to get near enough to, to feel the heat from another human body, to, to know him. But Jesus says, actually, the advantage is better for me to go away and for the Spirit to be inside of you than for me to be beside you. I mean, drink this in for a moment, that the Second paraclete, the Holy Spirit's indwellment in the life of the believer, him being the personal presence of Christ in our lives, is better than Jesus personally being beside us and for us being able to observe and participate in his ministry. That will blow our minds, won't it? But that's the teaching. That's why in places like Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is actually referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Because he is the replacement of Christ physically. He now is Christ internally. We have the Godhead 
the blessed Holy Spirit. This is where we experience God personally. And so they trade places. And I want to encourage you to think this way because the Spirit of God, without Him, we can do nothing. And in this discourse, the Lord Jesus, right before He begins to talk about trading places with the second paraclete, the Spirit of God, He gives them commands like, love one another. Love one another like I've loved you. This is a new commandment I give to you. He gives them other commands like, if you love me, or statements, obey my commandments, keep my commandments. Now those may seem like pretty general commandments and um, loving one another, and this is the signet that will demonstrate that you're truly my disciples. All of these things seem to be decently easy, maybe grace-filled commands. But think about them. Without the power of the Spirit of God in our lives, these commandments are actually crushing. We don't have the ability to love others like Christ has loved us unless the Holy Spirit pours and sheds abroad in our hearts the love of Christ. We don't have the ability to love others in such a way that they would see the uniqueness of our faith, that we're followers of Christ. We don't have the ability to keep His commands. We don't have the ability to even love Jesus. All of that is because the second paraclete has come into our heart and he's transforming our lives. He's changing us to be like the Son. According to Romans 8, he is literally renovating us to be like the Son of God. So this trading of places is the greatest advantage even though the disciples were worried, we're told in the same passage in John 16 that they were concerned, their hearts were filled with sorrow because they didn't want to see Jesus leave. But Jesus is saying, you really don't understand what's going to take place. Because if you understood what was going to take place, what I'm teaching you in these final, this, this section on the farewell discourse is that the advantages of having the Holy Spirit make me leaving a wonderful actually advantage. So, without me you can do nothing. We've seen there are two paracletes. The Holy Spirit is another helper, another defense attorney. And we see they trade places, but finally I want you to see that there are three prosecutions. So not only is the Holy Spirit a defense attorney in the life of a believer, when a person comes to faith in Christ... He's actually a prosecuting attorney. So he, he actually convicts, he actually cross-examines. So I want us to see this. He says in verse number um, 8 of chapter 16, and when he comes, referring to the paraclete, the second paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This Greek word, elekko, convict, means to, it was a Greek word that means to cross-examine or to scrutinize and examine carefully, to bring a person to the point of recognizing they have broken the law. That's what the picture is of the word convict. So I think you see now that if we're not careful, if we kind of tend towards describing the Holy Spirit as the comforter, and Jesus as the advocate or the defense attorney or the prosecutor, we can start having a pneumatology, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of light and only about emotions and feelings. And 
Unfortunately, some people have, have gone down that trail, but it's an unbiblical trail. To only think of those things associated with the Spirit of God as, as feelings-based and, and love and happiness and, and spectacular events. Actually, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world is not going to be as much demonstration of powerful acts as it's going to be convicting and cross-examining human hearts before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is always the way that it happens. Now again, we account for different age brackets. Some of us were, were very young when we came to faith in Christ and repentance of sin. But this is the same way that it happens every time because according to 1 Corinthians 1, the cross to a natural human is foolishness and weakness. It requires, according to 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit of God to open up the eyes of the heart so that it becomes wisdom and power. And so real quickly, there are three prosecutions that the Spirit of God makes to the world, to unbelievers, to bring them to faith in Christ. He acts on their hearts to lead them to faith and repentance. First of all, there is the conviction of sin, unbelief in Christ. He explains what this conviction of sin is later in the passage. He says in verse number 9, he says, and when he comes, he'll convict of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he says, of sin, because they believe not on me. So he summarizes all sin in this one statement by saying, you could summarize all transgression this way. It's unbelief ultimately in the Messiah. It's not fully believing in the Christ, in Jesus. Here's what the Holy Spirit does on a practical level. He begins to open up the eyes, and we have eyes in our soul, the eyes of the soul, and it begins to see sin as deeper and darker than it ever imagined. You see, an unbelieving heart in Christ generally looks at sin as, eh, I've got some mistakes in my life, but compared to other people, I'm not that bad. And yeah, there's some things I need to change, and um, I need to do better, and, um, but, but pretty much I, I'm doing okay. But when the Spirit of God comes and cross-examines the human heart, all of a sudden sin becomes darker and deeper than they ever imagined. They go from, I'm naughty, but I'm nice, or nobody's perfect, shrugging it off all of their lives, they, have, they go from suddenly looking at sin as just a, a, a mess up to a declaration of independence from God. They push God to the suburbs of their lives and he was just a footnote. And all of a sudden, it's no longer just politely holding God at arm's length. But the weight of their sin and the, the, the depth of their sin begins to crush them. See, the Spirit of God does this. It's a gracious work that he helps us see that we're dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, it happened to the thieves on the cross, right? The thief on the cross. There were two on either side of Christ when he was crucified. And we're told that they were both originally mocking Jesus, saying, if you're the son of God, like you say you are, and like that placard above your head says you are, do a trick. Get us off the cross. Do something. 
But later, something happened to one of the thieves. And, and he looks at the other one, maybe he leans over, we're not sure exactly, but he says, we're up here for, for justly for our unrighteous deeds, but this one has done nothing wrong. And then he says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. What took place on the cross? It was the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit opening up the eyes of the heart of this thief who was just looking to get relief from his execution originally, but now he, he had fallen under the weight of his own transgressions, understanding that the righteous one was beside him. Have you come to this place where you've understood that sin is deeper and darker than you ever imagined? If you're a believer, it happens. There was a moment where sin became just more than a mess up. More than, sorry, almost like you stubbed your toe. But sin become weighty. And the Holy Spirit cross-examines and he prosecutes that way. Secondly, he prosecutes and cross-examines about righteousness. God's righteous verdict of the gospel. You'll notice it says here, he convicts of righteousness. Verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What he's saying here is, is it's not okay for someone to just be 50% a decent man. I mean, all of us have attended funerals where the person is being remembered and they're talking about how he was a good person or she was a good person and, and there's virtues that are being reminded of. But what this is teaching us is the Spirit of God, when he opens up a heart, begins to show us that righteousness is higher than you ever imagined. Not just that sin is deeper than you ever thought, but righteousness is higher to obtain than you ever imagined, that you ever thought, when you try to be righteous. That's why when Jesus was talking to the people and teaching them, he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, or you will all perish. You see, the righteousness that Luther began to be angry at God when he thought about Romans 1.17, and he began to, even in the monastery, think, how can God be so cruel to call me to righteousness? I can't attain it. Even my best days are like, and he coined that phrase, they're like filthy rags from the prophet. But then Luther's eyes were open and he realized, wait, there's a righteousness that's actually been provided for me outside of me. And that's what the phrase here means, because I go to my father and you will see me no longer. You see, Christ's resurrection from the dead was the grand exclamation point that he had fulfilled all that was needed for our salvation but now for our justification to be declared completely righteous. And that's why in 1 John 2, 1, he says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, the righteousness of God is this righteous verdict that we can have in the gospel. We can be fully known yet fully loved, as that modern song tells us. What a wonderful, amazing truth. That our righteousness is not what gives us acceptance from God. It's the righteousness we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. But God, the Father, has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Don't you love that 
modern hymn, Before the Throne of God, where it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and points to the, the sin within, upward I look and see him there, my spotless righteousness. See, the Holy Spirit is the one that turns our eyes away from our own works, those filthy rags that we try to bring to, to God in some type of pleasure-seeking, trying to appease God. And we understand, no, there's a righteousness provided for us in Christ outside of us. It's an alien righteousness, as it's referred to. And finally, there's one other prosecution that the Holy Spirit, the second paraclete, is going to cross-examine and convict a soul of, and that is judgment, ultimate judgment, ultimate accountability. You see, the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of the heart to help us see that sin is more deep and more dark than we ever imagined. That righteousness is higher and more difficult and impossible to obtain than we ever thought. But he teaches us that judgment is nearer than we anticipated. Judgment is closer than we anticipated. Judgment, because the prince of this world, Satan, has been judged. And what he's speaking of here is at the cross, Satan was given that death blow. His head was crushed. And it was a reminder that ultimate judgment, ultimate casting Satan into the lake of fire is coming. But it also reminds us that judgment not only for Satan, the evil one, the wicked one, is coming, but judgment for all humans is imminent. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27, 1. Today is the day of salvation. One of the ways you know that the Spirit of God has not convicted a soul of this is a person who thinks they have plenty of time. They think, there'll be a day where I will make my soul right with God. Maybe I'll have a deathbed salvation. I'll just keep putting it off. There'll be a moment after I'm done enjoying myself and sowing my wild oats. I'll take care of God at some moment. But all of a sudden, their soul is required of them. And Hebrews 9.27 puts it this way. It's appointed unto every human a day to die. We all have an expiration date on our back, whether we realize it or not. It's appointed unto humans once to die, and after this, the judgment. So what do we do with this? Well, number one, if, if you have experienced these things, here's the grand news. The second paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he's been convicting you. He's opening up the eyes of your heart. He's drawing you to Christ. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. What he's doing by showing you sin to be ever so deep, deeper than you ever imagined, and what he's showing you by righteousness being higher than you could ever obtain and that judgment is sooner than you ever thought, is to draw you to faith in Christ and repentance of your sins. That's how all of us are born again. John 3 says we're born of the Spirit. We have a second birthday. We all are born again the same way. We see sin is deeper than we imagine. We see righteousness higher than we can obtain, and we see judgment imminent. What about believers the Holy Spirit who convicts of this is also the defense attorney who reminds us that it has all been dealt with at the cross. But I want to apply this maybe a little differently as we conclude. 
Believer, have you stopped praying for an unsaved friend or family member or coworker or neighbor who you in times past prayed passionately for that God's spirit would take away the blinders from their heart, that the God of this world, Satan, who has blinded them, lest they believe in the glorious gospel, that the spirit of God would do just exactly what he promises he will do, what he comes to do. Have we stopped praying? Have we grown weary and well-doing? Are they no longer on the prayer list? We no longer asking the second paraclete to do his convicting, cross-examining ministry. I want to encourage us as believers to recommit ourselves to praying the will of God, that the Holy Spirit, that the second paraclete would convict in this way. And I also want to encourage us as believers to allow our defense attorney, the one that's in our hearts, not just simply Jesus, we praise the Lord that he is before the throne pleading our cause, but we now have the second paraclete to our wonderful spiritual advantage to preach the gospel to our own souls. Without him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your planning before the foundation of the world, the gospel. This gospel is good news. We thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing, giving yourself as a sacrifice, for giving your body. You knew that the Father was not pleased with simply the blood of bulls and goats, but, but you said, a body you have prepared for me. Prior to the incarnation, you volunteered. You came to do his will. For 33 and a half years or so, you lived a perfect life. And then you gave your life as the Lamb of God, which bears away the sin of the world. And then you rose from the dead. And Father and Son, you, you sent us the Spirit, the second paraclete. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are in our hearts and you defend our cause. You defend us for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have in him. Lord, you are the very presence of the Godhead in our hearts. We praise you that you teach us to say, Abba, Father. Even when we don't know what to say, you give us utterance that we don't even recognize in praying to the Father. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Continue to grow us in our understanding of your work and ministry. May we yield to you. May we obey you. May we not quench you or resist you or grieve you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.